in three two one what's going on folks welcome to 34 questions i'm your host 34 and tonight i have a very special guest michael callahan is in the building how are you doing tonight michael i'm doing pretty great 34 how are you i'm doing all right man um actually more than all right it's just that i feel like sometimes my day job takes a lot of energy out of me um but i always feel like it's a it's a good way to just give back to to the universe um i work with students during the day i, I work at a high school running their after school program so i spend all my day pretty much hanging with teenagers and you know trying to get them to where they want to be or where they see themselves uh, but yeah doing great it's a wednesday so we're halfway there uh how about yourself your wednesday been been going well so far yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. It's, it's good to be halfway through the week. Uh, I was just listening to your episode with Miss Carrie. Are you still tired in a good way from all your teaching assistant job? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Miss Carrie. Um, I met Miss Carrie at a previous job, and that one, I think, was a little more... Uh, that did take a lot of energy out of me, but in a different way. Um, at that time, as a, as a teaching assistant, I was working one-on-one with students for pretty much four to five hours a day. And uh, at this job, it's more like multiple students at different times uh, and a lot shorter. I wouldn't say four or five hours, more like two to three hours, depending on how much the kids want to stay stick around after school. But uh, yeah, it's, it's similar but different. Um, but either way, it's, it was very fulfilling for me. And I think that's all we're, we're looking for in life, right? Something to fulfill our souls uh, and our spirits. And uh, I'm just thankful that after, I don't know if you heard my other episodes, but after 17, 18 jobs, I think I finally found a found my thing to, to push through and kind of do for the rest of my life. So thank you for asking. I appreciate that. Um, of course, man. If, and if I may ask another question. Oh, absolutely. What makes this thing your thing? After 17, 18 jobs, what is it about what you're doing now that truly fulfills you that the other jobs didn't? For sure. I think at the time, too, um, I wasn't sure or I, I, it, I didn't recognize what it was because I actually the job I'm at right now and the one I speak so highly of, I was here four years ago and I ended up leaving to chase more money and, you know, maybe try to climb the social or yeah social status ladder uh, and show people that I'm keeping up with with everybody else in my age range um and you know I think that was a common thing for a lot of us out there uh who are still trying to find out what career we want or what decisions to make as far as our day job but this it makes me feel like I really try to I try to give my all to everyone else like I I realize I'm a people pleaser and at this point in my life I feel like I just want to own it and be like all right I'm gonna be that dude I'm gonna be that dude that just not I don't see it as people pleasing but I want to be that dude that exudes some energy that you know if you interact with me I hope that you can feel that I'm just doing the best I can to make sure this interaction that we have is is like a memorable experience or an experience that makes you feel better at leaving from. Um, so I like working with people and I've worked with a lot of adults. And it's, I'm not saying that's a terrible thing to work with adults, but there is a different kind of barrier or wall uh, when it comes to, you know, working with, with older folks. So working with kids, though, the wall's still there. But for some reason, I, I feel this uh, 
this purity in their energy like they haven't been jaded just yet <laughs> with with life and the things that go on even though i know there's some that are going through some difficult things um they you know they still have that child uh, childlike energy and i know i still got that as well like i feel like i'm a big kid um so it, it vibes really well with who i am i know it's not for everybody not everybody likes working with kids uh, but for me where i'm at with my life and the experiences i've had it makes me feel like it fits and um yeah just seeing kids grow i don't have kids myself i think that's also another part of it um that i can i can help uh other kids grow and, and see their growth in the work that i do uh, so that's that for me is like very like fulfilling uh so yeah as long as i'm i don't feel like i'm being selfish which i am i still am i'm not perfect but you know i want to be able to find ways to not be as selfish as i am when i'm here at home by myself uh you know taking the time uh, for myself so yeah i try to put myself in situations like working at the school and doing this podcast to interact with folks and you know just continue to, to put out that energy touch as many lives as i can um so i think that's what it is man yeah i totally get that i mean i, I worked with uh, fifth grade elementary school students for about six years in a volunteer capacity um, with this organization in LA that basically would uh, I'm trying to think of a Cliff's Notes version of it basically pairs 10 mentors from the film industry or the creative industry with 10 fifth graders. There's also middle school and high school versions of this as well but I preferred working with elementary school students because one, when you're working with middle school students and all the puberty is hitting them, uh, they're not always the most pleasant to be around. I, I'm sure I was a pain in the neck when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, God bless anyone who works with kids of that age. They are going <laughs> through a lot. But um, for me, like the, the real sweet spot was like 11, 12 years old. Because like you said, they, they had that wonder. They had that boundless imagination, that childlike awe. Um, and over the course of eight weeks, um, there would be 10 mentors paired with 10 students at like these um, either schools that like had underfunded arts programs or, or like at-risk children. And we pair 10 mentors with 10 kids and then they'd have a head mentor. And that was my role who would guide the group uh, one hour a week. The first 30 minutes we'd play different kinds of games that were all related to the structure of storytelling. And then in the back half, the last 30 minutes, the kids would be paired off with their individual mentors and those mentors would guide those kids over the course of eight weeks through writing their first five-page screenplays. And then in the last week, um, we would have a special event in the school auditorium where all 10 kids would get to audition professional actors that we would bring in. And then they would get to hand out their scripts to those actors and those actors would perform their five-page scripts live in their school auditorium for their friends, their family, their teachers, their classmates, and it was a really transformative experience, not only for these kids who, for many of them, this was the first time they would ever get to be creative outside of the bounds of homework. We, we didn't put any, any limitations on the, the stories that the kids had to tell, aside from no violence and no curse words. But beyond that, they could tell any story they wanted to. And I could see the transformative power of giving kids that agency to, to write whatever they wanted to and to see that validation from adults who importantly weren't their parents and weren't their teachers it was just adults who they didn't know who were putting in time um to help enable these kids to pursue their dreams and their visions and it was one of the most rewarding moments of my life because i got to learn it sounds cheesy but i got to learn so much from those kids and also it was a blessing to be able to put myself in that space 
to, to see stories from the child's perspective. So I, I really do a kind of storytelling for a living. I work in, in advertising and you can get really jaded pretty quickly. Oh, so yeah. to be transported back and see those stories and see kids fall in love with storytelling the same way that I did when I was their age, it was like watering the plant of my soul. <laughs> and so I, I really do miss that, but I totally get what you're saying. And I do want to circle back to something you said earlier. I don't want to negate how you describe yourself, but I do think that um, how you're describing a 34 doesn't make it sound like you're a people pleaser. It makes it sound like when you interact with people, you leave them with a pleasant feeling. And I do think that that is a distinct, it's a distinct, it's a distinct difference. I think leaving people feeling better than you found them is a really great trait, but I associate people pleasing with kind of bending over backwards, doing anything asked of you, almost sycophantically, you know, just like doing anything possible. And that I think is, is, can, can be really toxic, but Mm. seeking to leave people feeling pleasant, seeking to leave them feeling better than you found them, I think is a really positive trait. And I think it's something that you're modeling with this podcast. I appreciate that, Mike. Um, you know, and as far as people pleasing goes, I do want to address that one. <laughs> uh, I, I still am that person that you described as far as people pleasing goes. If you ask my coworkers, um, they, they know I'm that kind of guy who almost says yes to almost everything. Uh, I'm willing to put almost everything on my plate. Um, you know, because the thing about it, Mike, for me is that, you know, I, I want people to be driven uh, to do what they feel like they're passionate about. Um, and sometimes there's tasks that people aren't passionate about. Um, and this is how I kind of been my whole life, but I, I'll pick up those, those tasks that, that people don't want to do. And, you know, if it's for the betterment of the, if it's for the greater good, you know, I'll take that responsibility on. And at some point I'm sure, uh, you know, the quality of work isn't going to be there or maybe I'll get burnt out. Um, but I do want to show people that I'm willing and that like, I hope other people can see that, okay, this guy's really putting a lot on himself. Um, maybe I should help him out or maybe I should do something to to contribute to, you know, the, the fight of the greater good. Um, and I, I recently got into, you know, a managerial role, supervisory role, and that's something my bosses always are, are actually working with me uh, on it is to delegate and to ask people to, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, which is a very uncomfortable space for me at the moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to growing into it. Uh, but, you know, as a supervisor, my, my whole goal is to find what's, pa- what's the passion of the workers underneath me so I can get them into situations and places where they feel driven themselves. And, I, you know, that for me would be a success as a leader is to, to be able to put them in a place where they intrinsically are you know putting up putting their best foot forward or you know doing the most or doing going the extra mile because they really care about what they're doing um which is you know after 18 jobs man i've, I've seen a lot of folks are not in that kind of situation uh so i guess for me that's that's kind of how i try to you know lead by example is by taking all these things on um yeah i'm trying to be careful so i, I appreciate you uh looking out for me but Oh, of course. Yeah. And and I would and I would say I think that leading by example and again I know this is all unsolicited so I appreciate you listening to my unsolicited advice. But I would just say I would just say leading by example is is an amazing quality and I think I think that um it speaks highly of you that you seek to do that. My only pushback would be um I used to work on film sets. Uh I come from a film background initially. It's why I moved to Los Angeles. And I used to be an assistant director. So basically what an assistant director does 
It's not a creative position. So uh, to describe it in better detail, let's say you were the director on a film set and I was your assistant director, 34. And so as the director, you'd be focusing on all the creative stuff. So you'd be off working with the actors, walking them through their lines. You'd be working with the costume designer, the cinematographer, the production designer, making your vision come to life on set, right? So while you're focusing on all the creative stuff, I, as your assistant director, and making sure that everything is on time, the schedule is orderly, that we're making all the shots needed in a 12 hour day, right? So if you've got 30 shots you absolutely need while we're on this location for a single day, I'm the guy who makes it happen. So I'd be running around the set, you know, all right, we're gonna bring the horses in in uh, two hours, get those kids into uh, studio teachers, we need them on the books, and then get the lead actress into makeup, get the actor to set. I'm basically running the set so that everything is on time when it needs to be, so you can focus on creative. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all of that is because I too, initially, right out of film school, had a big problem with delegation. Because for me, in, in the same way, kind of just in my life, it feels weird to ask someone else to do something that I know that I'm perfectly capable of doing. Now, the reason that I bring that up is that when you're in a managerial or leadership position, and this was something that was passed along to me by a director I was working for at the time. So I was pretty fresh out of film school. I was working on a commercial set. And uh, it was just, it was right at the start of the day. And at the start of the day, right when you get on film set, the production assistants, they're basically like um, the, and I mean this strictly in terms of, uh, uh, just in terms of hierarchy, the production assistants are at the the very low end of the production, right? So they're vitally important, but in terms of seniority, they're they're at the bottom. To, to put into context, my very first roles on film sets for the first couple of years was production assistant. Basically, you need something set up really quickly. You need tables moved. You need chairs moved. You need someone to drive to go get a Starbucks for the director. or You need them to run to Costco to get such and such. Like they're, They run the errands for you. They're gophers, basically. They do exactly what they're told. And I saw the production assistant setting up the tables that like the breakfast and food would go on, which is the thing that you do right at the beginning of the day. And I saw, because it was a smaller shoot, I saw they were kind of struggling with it, right? So I ran over to, to start helping them because for me, I'm an able-bodied guy. I, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And so I, I started to help them. And a few minutes in, I heard the director like shouting my name. You know, he sounded a little bit upset. And he, he calls me over and, he, and uh, on film sets and in, in my work, I go by my last name, Callahan, because there's way too many Michaels in the world. Who's <laughs> like, Callahan, get over here. And I was like, all right. He's like, I need to talk to you. And he pulled me aside. Thankfully, he did this in private. And he was like, I never want to see you doing that again. And I was like, why? And he was like, you're my assistant director. I don't want to turn my back. And when I turn back around, you're not there because you are vitally important to me. And for us to make this day and for us to run this set, you have to be here. And he's like, I know that you wanted to help them because they were struggling. But the thing is, is that you doing your role, the role that is assigned to you, the role that I'm paying you for, is the most important thing that you can do. And every time you're not doing the thing that you need to do, our set suffers. And once he put that in perspective for me that, oh, by just me focusing on my one exclusive job, it actually makes everything else in the film set work better. Because if I'm spending time doing something that I'm not assigned to do, uh, something's gonna fall through the cracks. Um, And so that's all I would say is that um, don't let your your, your clear benevolent passion for helping other people and, and a, a, a reticence to delegate, which I completely understand, keep you from doing what you're meant to do, whether that's with work or with life. It's, it, I, it's a total struggle and I totally get it, but just be wary of the things that you might be distracted from doing that are actually important 
um, if you overload yourself. I got you, man. I think uh, <laughs> I think my boss would definitely, you know, thank you for continuing <laughs> to spread that message to me, man. Um, you're right. You're right. And that's that's where I feel like, you know, I'm kind of feeling that um, that that right now that concern of the quality of my, my role at, at the moment. Um, you know, it's I'm trying to do so much. Uh, and I've been able to so far, uh, but I, I am very aware of trying to make sure that, like, you know, things aren't my, my, what I would, what my boss would consider my priorities to not, you know, be dropped. Um, and then after that, I try to do all the extra things uh, afterwards. And, you know, for, for my team, I feel like, you know, uh, we're trying to get more folks back into working with, with kids and students. It's, it's been pretty hard after Corona, to be honest. Um, a lot of people are kind of, you know, that fear of, oh, I'm in a school. There's kids who don't really, you know, pay attention to hygiene and health and stuff. And, you know, being in, in a situation like that can, you know, turn people away from that kind of work. And that's where we are. Um, so in my mind, as I'm, I'm doing my job and, you know, I'm looking for my own assistant in this leadership position. Um, so right now I'm kind of doing as both jobs. Uh, and yeah, I'm hoping I can find somebody just as passionate to come in so I could feel comfortable, which kind of sucks now that I, now that I kind of say it out loud. Um, like I want to, oh, because uh, I want to believe in the team that I have, you know, the team that that's with me right now. Uh, and I know they're capable of, of more. It's just uh, one thing that we always kind of bring up is our capacity, you know, our capacity within our work, capacity outside of work. Um, and I feel like everyone on the team has stuff that, you know, they're going through or they have things at home that, you know, maybe affects how much energy they have at work. Um, so I think it's unfair for me to expect them to to bring you know my level of passion when our circumstances are different or our experiences have been different um so it's very for me I'm, I'm trying to navigate that you know i'm trying to show them that i'm trying to be understanding um but i also know that you know there could there is more work that could be done and i, I hope that you, you have that energy that to to do it <laughs> uh, instead of me just saying you know this is what needs to be done and then you know they're like oh like i can't like i don't have the time or the energy to do what you're asking me to do and i'm like well this is the job that you signed up for you know i don't you know i don't want to come with that energy uh so yeah that's that's the thing i'm trying to figure out um in my position at the moment i would say i get that man i i think a lot of it is about framing i think because I, I even even when i'm in leadership positions today I don't like being the bad guy or making it seem like I'm forcing people to do stuff. But I also recognize the tension that you're addressing, which is that, well, I need people to do the stuff that they signed up for when they took the job, right? And so how do you broach that? And I, I found that when you, it really is a lot about language and framing. And when you call someone in, like in a good way and be like, hey, like we're all in this together, we're a team. And I, I, I need you, you know? Like if you frame it in such a way where it's like, uh, you are vitally important to me. You're vitally important to this team. And I, I need you to do X, Y, Z because, and it, it's it's oftentimes an, uh, a really good reason to be vulnerable, right? Like if I'm overwhelmed at work um, and I appeal to their goodness and I appeal to the fact that like, hopefully they care about me in the same way that I care about them as a colleague. And I'm like, 
I'm drowning. Like I'm feeling overwhelmed. It would be so amazing, you know, if you could help me out and do X, Y, Z, right? And and so instead of framing it as a, you're not doing well, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm using a hypothetical example. Instead of saying, oh, you're not, uh, you're not doing X, Y, Z, you're supposed to be doing X, Y, Z. If people see, and I'm sure they do, how hard you're working, and then you frame it in such a way where it's like, I could really use your help because I know what a great XYZ person you are. I know what, how great you are at this. And if you do this, it'll really help me because I, I need, I know how much, you know, I'm focusing on these kids. And if I could just have another half hour to focus on this one thing, that would be such a huge help to me. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's about just wording it in such a way that doesn't trigger the reaction that I think you're afraid of getting. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and you know, honestly, <laughs> what I've been thinking about is, uh, well, off the top of my mind, I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. So I'm thinking about writing the, my my coworkers a letter, you know, just letting them know how much I appreciate and all the value I see in them. And like, you know, just the, the stuff that I can see be utilized in the work that we do uh, that, that I know that they have in them. And I, I think they can see it for themselves, too. It's just that, you know, like I said, capacity is, um, you know, I don't want to go into each each coworker and like you know tell tell their story pretty much but they, <laughs> no i get it it's 34 questions not 34 coworkers. I <laughs> yeah. um but no it i, I do want to write a letter to them to let them know all the things like how great i see them being um but also letting them know that you know i don't want to be like i basically want to explain everything i'm feeling but in a letter instead of talking to them face to face just because a lot of the times i'll miss something or i'll skip ahead because i get nervous and so i hope maybe a letter and then having a one-on-one meeting with each person and then you know kind of reflecting on that so they can tell me how they felt about the things i said and then moving forward from there like i don't know this is new to me i don't i haven't had a boss who kind of approached it this way but i think it's just something that feels right for me um and for me to also get all my thoughts and you know all my comments out and in one time instead of having to you know say a little bit here and then wait and one another week say a little more uh and you know my boss tells me to you need to she tells me to slow down and like i'm trying to rush this change and shift or you know thing that i'm trying to do at work um building culture pretty much like you can't rush building culture uh and i understand that but it's maybe something I need to learn for myself because I, I just can't help my <laughs> I can't help it, man. <laughs> uh, it almost feels like I'm running out of time uh, sometimes, and yeah, I think that feeling makes me feel like I need to push hard and you know, like go you know, put my foot on gas pedal and um, no matter what tell what my boss tells me as far as like you need to slow down, you need to stop saying yes to everything. It's like I gotta show that it can be done and like it's not gonna break me. Uh, which I, that sounds toxic as I say it, but you know, it's, 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 I guess a lesson I have to learn the hard way at this point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I get you, man. And I, I think you're going to do great. I mean, I think you, you give off an energy that, uh, that is clear in your podcast. And even in this conversation that is going to come through in the letters you write, I mean, you've got to let go of ego side behind you. I think people are going to be, I think people are going to feel that. And, um, I think hopefully they'll come back with the same energy you're going to put in that letter. I think you got it. I appreciate it, Mike, man. Um, and now this was basically you helped me vent a little bit about work uh, and I appreciate you giving me that space. Um, but I do you know, want to ask you some questions as well. Uh, so let's move on, <laughs> if you don't mind, to the warm up. So let's do it. Here's my graphic for the warm up. 
Uh, so anyways, my first question for you in the warm-up is, what would you like the audience to know about you? Excellent question, 34. I would like them to know that, well, I have my own podcast and it has become a much larger part of my life than I initially thought it would be in a really good way. You know, I started it uh, two years ago, a little over two years ago. One, because I'm a huge extrovert and the lockdown was driving me crazy. I live alone. Uh, I have a dog and he's great, but he's not much of a talker. <laughs> and so I started the show that's interview based, kind of like this one, because I, I just really needed to talk with people. And more specifically, I wanted to try and have the kinds of conversations around things like uh, culture, society, politics, um, that I didn't really feel that I was having with with my friends and my family because I feel like a lot of the topics around, or a lot of the conversations around topics that are really important have gotten really binary and can turn toxic really quickly. And that's never really been my brand, so to speak. Like, I like, you know, chopping it up and, and having nuanced conversations, complex conversations about complex topics. And so I kind of wanted to try to model that um, in the same way that you're modeling empathy and inquisitiveness in this podcast. I want to try and model uh, empathy and curiosity and nuance um, in the topics that I care about. And, and it initially just really started as a lark. But over time, I found that I really liked podcasting and, um, and really liked talking with people. I, I still think I'm a better host than a guest. So hopefully I'm going to do okay here because um, I love prepping and I love researching and you know, doing all the work so I can be the best host I can be and make every guest feel like they had just the best interview of their lives. Um, at least that's the, that's the, the, that's the bar that I set for myself. I know, I don't know how often I reach it, but I, I, I think you totally get what I'm saying. It's like you, you set as high a bar as possible and you try to hit it and maybe you rarely do, but if you don't set the bar high, you're not even going to try to hit it. So that's what I aim to do with the podcast. And it's become uh, a big part of my life and a, a really good creative outlet. And it's given me a lot of purpose um, that I didn't have before. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, I think a lot of who I am is wrapped up in that show. Um, I think I am like my father in that I'm very curious. I love learning about a lot of different things. And I think I have, I'm a very empathetic person. I think it helps me as a creative. Um, it definitely helped me as a director working with other people. Uh, it's very hard for me not to see the world through other people's eyes. And it's very hard for me not to understand where other people are coming from. Um, so if I were like an X-Men, it would probably be the lamest superpower. But I do feel like it's something that is uh, I've really been blessed with over the course of my life. And I think it's probably why I'm in the field that I'm in and why, I, for instance, I, I liked working with kids as much as I did. Or I'm really a people person. And so, yeah, and it's also kind of why I was attracted to this show. It's like when you posted on on Reddit and I listened to uh, some of the episodes, I was really drawn in because I think you have a similar energy and you seem like a naturally inquisitive and curious person. And I was also really drawn in by kind of the thesis of your show and how it relates to uh, having a lack of relationship with your grandparents. I mean, for instance, I uh, never got to meet my dad's parents they both passed away before i was born in fact uh and i hope he doesn't mind me sharing this uh sorry pops if i <laughs> if i'm oversharing but um my mom and dad met 
And then in the and then they got engaged six weeks after they met, which is insane. They are still together to this day, uh, and they still lo- are deeply in love with each other. They ran a business together. I mean, it's a model marriage in that respect. It's obviously not perfect. No marriage is, um, but they are a really good model of what I think what a good marriage looks like. But in the six months between when they uh, got engaged and when they got married, uh, both my dad's parents passed away. Uh, and a whole other host of uh, terrible things happened to him. So I'm actually really grateful for my mom entering his life at that moment um, because uh, he didn't know how dark it was going to get. Of course, she didn't either. But I'm really glad that they had each other. So I never got to know my dad's parents because they passed away before I was even a thought. Um, and my mom's dad, my my biological grandfather, passed away when I was only five and a half. So I have some very vibrant memories of him. Um, but I never really got a chance to know him as a man and as a peer rather than as the, as you know, my big uh, gregarious grandfather on the East Coast who always bought me cool toys. So I'm blessed to still have my grandmother with me. She's 92 years old and I actually just recorded an interview with her a couple weeks ago. So I'm really grateful for her, but I do wish that I could have gotten to know so many other relatives that I never really got a chance to connect with. So in that way, um, I'm, I really connect with the thesis of your show. I appreciate that, man. I think you really, you know, uh, get the concept and, you know, the whole purpose behind it. And yeah, man, I I don't know if you you feel in the energy, but I think we are really alike in a lot of aspects. You know, we have our podcast and it seems like we're, we're extroverted people who, you know, just want to connect with other folks on a deeper level. Um, I, there's a lot of things I wish I could bring up with what you just said. I'm just going to try to go off with what I remember. <laughs> uh, I am not like like yourself. You say you do the research. I'm kind of opposite in that way with my with my podcast. Um, you know, you reached out. I saw you had a podcast, but I didn't want to listen too much because I'm more interested in getting you know to know you as a person, even maybe even outside the podcast or with the podcast. Regardless, just you as who you are as michael callahan that's who i want to get to know uh so for a lot of folks that come on or try to try to be, be guests i um i don't do my research <laughs> i try to learn everything I, I need to know you know during our conversation um and then as far as you know what you're doing as far as empathy goes like i feel like it's a buzzword nowadays but emotional intelligence seems to be some a concept that you know is, is entering into society's consciousness uh, someone had a previous guest had told me that it's like you seem like you have pretty high emotional intelligence which i'm not exactly sure what that means but you know maybe for yourself as well it's, it's i don't know i like to you know kind of just read energy or like read body language um read the tone or you know eye contact all these different things that i i guess counts as emotional intelligence but uh i guess for me it always just feels like what i've been doing my whole life uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with the nine types of geniuses. Like everyone's a genius. We just have to figure out what kind we fall into. Um, and interpersonal is, is one of those things. And I don't know if you've seen that before, but maybe it's worth look, taking a look at just for you and how you like to get to know people. Uh, yeah, it might be something interesting for yourself. Uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing too. Like, sorry, Pops, if, uh, if that's a little too much. But um, I definitely feel you on that. I always like you put it in a good way where you know you wish you could have experienced that with your grandparents as far as like being a peer or being at a, a similar age where you're starting to understand versus you know just being a little kid and you see these adults as like these giants pretty much and so uh, 
no, I, I just want to say I hear you and I think we relate on that level for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely feel like we're, we are vibing in that way. I think we are connected in that way. And I, I think as far as what I mean by getting to know, getting to know them as a peer, like I, I, I was having a conversation with my dad not so long ago. I can't remember if it was a few months or a couple of years ago. It all kind of blurs together in my mind. We have so many conversations, but I was telling him about how, excuse me, I was telling him about how when I was a kid, and I, I'm sure a lot of uh, people relate to this, um, it, it's, it's hard not to be self-centered when you're very young and because you don't realize you are. It's just you don't understand what it means to be an adult and you don't understand that when you're an adult, um, every choice you make requires sacrifice. Every single one, right? Like I have a dog now. I don't have any kids, but I have a dog. He's four years old. I got him when he was uh, two months old. And I knew I wanted a dog because I grew up with with a dog and I love dogs. They're they're kind of like me. I'm a big dog. I like meeting people. I like, I have, I'm high energy. I get excited about stuff. So me and a, a dog were like peas in a pod. And I got a dog and and I, I almost instantly understood that there were going to be sacrifices that I was going to have to make if I wanted to be a good dog owner. You know, I, I'm not going to leave him home alone for more than four or five hours at a time unless it's an absolute emergency because I don't want to have him be lonely and, and develop anxiety. Um, I have to make sure that he's well fed. I have to make sure that he's well trained and well behaved. And that, that requires sacrifice because I have to put hours into that. Hours that I could be watching movies or going on dates or playing video games or doing whatever the hell I want to do. Every single decision that you make is a sacrifice because something else could have been there rather than the thing you're doing. And I realized over time that I didn't mind making the sacrifice because I love my dog and he gives me so much joy. But still, I'm making a choice to sacrifice something that might bring me more pleasure in the short term in exchange for something that brings me much more joy and inner reward in the long term. And once I began to realize that with dog ownership, but also other things, as you get older, you understand that time is a valuable resource and everything that you do requires spending it somewhere. But as a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old, when time feels like a limitless commodity and summers last forever, I didn't really understand that to be good parents, my parents had to make so many sacrifices. And they had to sacrifice their immediate needs and gratification in order to make my childhood good. You know, like being there for my baseball games, being there for my theater rehearsals, being there to do homework with me, being there for vacations. All the things that made them fantastic parents, I took for granted because I had no context really as to what other kids and their parents were going through. I think a lot of people probably understand this. It's like when you whether you come from a wealthy background, a middle-class background, a poor background, working class, whatever it is, until you start to see the larger world, I think most of us kind of think that everyone else kind of lives our lives, you know, unless you have a ton of exposure to people that are outside of your socioeconomic sphere. And it wasn't until I got to college really, or, or later in high school and college, and really started to have deep conversations with other people about their childhood experiences, that I really began to understand and value all the things my parents did for me. And then as I got older than that, and I had, I had to start making hard choices about, you know, oh man, it would be really great to just stay home and, you know, have a beer or something, but I really should be doing this other thing that's more responsible. I began to understand that everything my parents did, even though they did it out of love, 
also required so much sacrifice that they could have put anywhere else towards a fun project they wanted to do or you know watching tv all night or whatever they any just you could paint the wall with any number of things that they wanted to do rather than help their sometimes annoying six-year-old son with his math homework because he sucked at math right and as a peer i'm able to understand all those sacrifices my mother and father made and i'm able to thank them for it as an adult it's one thing as a kid to, to thank your dad or thank your mom for doing something even if that thank you is genuine Every time I thanked my parents as a kid, I was genuine. But it's a thank you that is a little bit hollow because it doesn't carry the weight of understanding the actual sacrifice inherent in that job my parents did. But as a, you know, as a man in my 30s, I get it. And now I can tell my dad face to face, man to man, or my mom, <laughs> man to woman, Thank you for doing what you did because now I fully understand everything you had to do to give me a good childhood. And I never had the opportunity, unfortunately, to say that to my grandparents or, or to my grandfather um, who passed away before I was six. And so I do regret that, but I'm so grateful to have the parents I have and, and the grandmother that I have and, and tell them that to their face while I still have time. For sure, man. Um, you know, as far as appreciating our parents, I, I am there with you. I am an only child and I still stay with my parents. Um, and I think like aside from, you know, not being financially be able to live by myself at the moment, uh, I think a big part of me sticking around because, you know, I could I could scrape around, you know, I could get my own place and do all that. But being an only child and, you know, my I'm going to overshare something about my parents as well right now. They, uh, I had a sister who passed away when I was eight or when, yeah, when she was eight. I was uh, unborn. But I think that experience from my parents um, definitely shifted, you know, how they would raise their next child. Right. Uh, so from there, we, they were living in the Philippines when it happened. So we, they moved to America afterwards because healthcare they that's was the biggest issue is that they couldn't get the health care in the Philippines to save her. So um, moving to America and raising me, I was, I'll be honest, I was pretty sheltered. You know, they were really on me about, you know, being safe and um, don't risk anything. And, you know, just just stay to yourself. Uh, don't push any buttons. Do all that stuff. Um, and they, I feel like they've sacrificed a lot, um, you know, even just speaking with my my mom um recently like she i came i had her on the podcast as well one of my first few episodes of course my parents would be one of my first few episodes but uh she you know i found out she only slept like three hours a night at, back at that time when i was a kid and i had no idea you know like i thought because i got my eight hours of sleep every night that they both were getting that as well uh, which was totally untrue um my dad had his own you know life experience going on at that time as well uh, where even though like he you know he had his own substance issues and he used that I think as a way to kind of you know at, at that point in his life in his 30s losing a child trying to make things work here in America I'm sure there was a lot of pressure under him as well coming from a person where his father had died at the, when he was the age of two um, and I think he struggled a lot with like having a, a positive role uh positive male role role model and just learning how to be a good dad and how to be a good father how to be a good man um and so i 
now that as an adult and being able to look back on it, being able to talk to them about these things um, has given me a lot more appreciation. You know, uh, I see my parents as the people they are and I feel like they still have some kind of regret, something that they hold on to. And I try to tell them, you know, I definitely understand, you know, whether or not you feel like you made the right decisions at the time or I, I know that you were thinking that you were doing the you were doing the best you could with what you got and the information that you had. Um, and so I stay with them. You know, I'm still here, uh, you know, being making sure that I'm able to see them every day. Uh, I, I can see them every day and they can see me every day um, at some point. Um, and I think, you know, for my mom, she loves it. <laughs> but, but for me, there is that point where I'm feeling like maybe I need to be doing my own thing out there in the world. But can I really leave them? And, you know, I'm justifying my actions by telling myself that this is the way I'm repaying them for all the sacrifices they've made in my life. Maybe I should be doing something similar, you know. Uh, but, yeah, that's what I just want to say about that. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. And I think as we age and get to know our parents better and get to know them as peers and by peers, I just mean as fellow adults. We understand their flaws better. And I think knowing our parents' flaws and knowing that they're imperfect human beings like we all are, at least for me, it, it gives me a greater appreciation for the wonderful things they've done for me. Because when you when you see them as a child, if you're anything like I was, when you see them as a child, it's like just, just your hero, just this, you know, uh, perfect being who has everything under control and can, you know, <laughs> makes few if any mistakes. Um, once you get to know them as an adult and also realize that pretty much every adult, you know, is kind of always flying by the seat of their pants. We're all just trying to do the best we can. Once you realize that, it just, uh, it really puts into perspective uh, how much they got right, even though they were really just figuring it out as they went. For sure. For sure. Um, and I, I think that kind of plays into, you know, anyone out there who maybe feel like they're struggling or they don't know what they're doing. Um that's I feel feel like it's was one or one of those universal experiences that we all kind of go through as we get older. Maybe it's the maturity or um, you know, just having more experience gives us that insight. But yeah, I mean I think sorry. Oh my bad man. I lost my train of thought. But um what was the last part you were saying? About how once we understand our parents' flaws, mm. we can have a better appreciation for them. Yes, yeah. Uh, and for us to start with our parents and almost using that understanding to almost, you know, see everyone else in that kind of same lens, um, I think it, it helps us connect with people or build that empathy. Um, and I don't know for you, did you ever feel like growing up you were able to talk to people who were older and kind of like get you know knowledge from them or get their stories or was that just me <laughs> uh it depends on the age i mean i always like talking with people and i do remember stories that i was told by people who were older than me that that stayed with me is that what you mean yeah yeah i mean for for me uh like without my grandparents or without those older folks i was able to connect to it almost seemed like at a certain age i think around 12 or 13 for me like I would just talk to adults or like try to find out their, their like find out more about them find out their stories I would share I remember one adult in particular was like my bus driver that in the you know public public bus 
but they ran the same route so I'd see them every morning going to school and one day out of the blue I was like can you read my my poetry or my songs and tell me what you think of them uh, and I think that took them totally off guard it's like I see this kid like every day but we never talk and all of a sudden he's asking me to check out his poetry uh, but yeah for, for me it was like that it kind of manifested in that way where it was like okay I see somebody that I see every day let me you know try to connect in, in some way um, and I think for me that came because I didn't have that connection with my grandparents almost because um, if I did maybe those were the people that I would go to at least the older people that I would go to to, uh, to connect with yeah no I, I get it I think all, everything we do is informed by the things that happened either before we arrived or the things that happened to us as we're children and and again the older that I got the more I understood that a lot of the ways that my parents raised me was a direct result of what happened with their parents raising them and I imagine similarly to you know because of the tragic passing of your sister I imagine it had a big impact as like as you said on how your parents raised you probably more cautiously they were more concerned with your well-being because of course they don't want to lose a second child um similarly my father grew up uh with four brothers and his mom and dad um moved the family around a lot because his dad was always switching jobs and uh i didn't realize how big of an impact that had on how he raised me and my sister and it was only once I was in my 20s when, you know, because my dad was oftentimes, before he started his own business with my mom when I was about 16, he uh, often seemed unhappy at work. And I always wondered, you know, my dad was a super talented guy, um, a great people person, um, just super outgoing, a great manager, so many fantastic qualities. And I always wondered, you know, why, even as a kid, why is he staying around when he could be just working anywhere else and just be doing gangbusters? He'd be doing great. And um, he never really gave me a straight answer as a kid, but it wasn't until I was about 22, 23, we went out to dinner and I asked him again, you know, because by this point he owned his own business and was really thriving. And I asked my dad, I was like, I know you weren't ready to start your business until, you know, everything was financially straight and you guys felt secure enough to take that risk. But before that, why didn't you, you know, take another job? And he told me, you know, point blank, he said, you know, son, I, I did get offers. I, I got an offer that would have doubled my salary. And uh, I thought about taking it, but it would have required us moving a few hours away. And I didn't want you to experience the childhood that I had because I never got to make good childhood friends because every single time I got to make friends, one or two years later, I'd have to move to another school because my, you know, my dad lost his job or he quit his job and we'd be moving to another town. And I always wished as a kid that I had really best friends. And I never had that, not once. And so I wanted to make sure that you and your sister had the experience that I never got to have. And so while I oftentimes thought about taking other jobs, I knew that I never would because your happiness and giving you the childhood that I wanted was more important to me than taking some job that I might've been a little happier with. And again, it, it all speaks back to what I was saying earlier of like truly understanding the sacrifices your parents make for you and also understanding why they do it. Because I think so much of what we do, whether or not we're parents, just as people, is reactionary. Whether we know it or not, we're reacting to trauma, we're reacting to reward, we're reacting to all kinds of things that are happening to us either years ago, yesterday, right now. 
We're hyper social animals and we are reactionary to the things that happen to us, traumatic or happy or whatever it is. And so, yeah, man, I, I get it. I feel you, man. And uh, thank you again for sharing and shout out to Pops, man. <laughs> that is a, that I can imagine for him, like, I hope he feels like he was successful in doing that, you know, that he feels content that he was able to kind of give you the life that he he didn't have as a kid. Um, and I don't know for you, but um, like, I, I don't want to put that pressure on you and say, you know, uh, talk about kids. But as far as, you know, maybe if you did, is there a way that you would kind of, you know, what would you want for your kid that you feel like you didn't get? If you don't mind me asking. I don't mind you asking at all. Um, questions was in the title of the podcast, and I'm happy <laughs> to answer. For sure. Um what would I give my kids that I didn't have? That is a great question. I'm not sure. Um, cause I had so much, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had parents who loved me. I, I had parents who supported me in my endeavors. Um, for sure. And you know. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling to answer. I want to give you an answer. Um, I, I know the things that I want to give my kids, but I'm, my hypothetical one day future kids, but I don't know if there's anything that was lacking. I mean, I, I'm sure I would do things slightly differently, you know, like things here and there, but I, I can't think of a big thing that I would give them that my parents didn't give me. For sure, man. And I think if your parents hear that, it would just warm their hearts, you know, might, might make them tear up a little bit. <laughs> but I got you. I got you. And maybe, you know, it's something we won't know until we get to the, to that point, right? Um, so who knows? We, we Things can come up, situations can come up. And, uh, you know, you might be inspired, maybe depending on how, you know, your kid is. Uh, you'd be like, oh, wait, this is different, you know? Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I hear you, man. It's hard. It's hard to think about it when you, you, that moment hasn't come up just yet. Um, just a heads up, man. <laughs> we have about 15 minutes left in, in our conversation tonight. Uh, but don't you know, I, I don't feel bad or nothing. I honestly like it when the conversation kind of just flows the way it has for us. Um, and you're always welcome to come back for a second episode if you really want to go through the gauntlet. Uh, but I think for tonight, we're just going to have to get through the uh, the warm-up, if that's okay with you. Fine by me, man. It's it's your show. Run it however you'd like. I'm just happy to be involved. All right, man. Uh, well, my second question for you in the warm-up is, if there was an act I could do uh, to express the energy you possess, what could I do? In other words, how would you like to be honored? That's a great question. I... I would want you to honor me, <laughs> be like some kind of deity, um, <laughs> honor me by erecting 30, you know, 30 statues that look exactly like me. No, um, <laughs> what would I have you do? Um, well, I, I think in the spirit of curiosity and empathy, I would want you to, uh, every day for 30 days, um, try and talk to a stranger and get to know them on a personal level in the time that you have with them. Um, doesn't have to be a super long conversation. Obviously, people have limited time. Who knows, you know, that stranger you're talking to might be going off to do something important and doesn't have a lot of time. But I, I think it's because I'm endlessly curious about other people 
I think that everyone I come across has something to teach me. And I, I, I think that every human being is fundamentally valuable in some way, right? Not we're not all valuable in the same way, but I think that everyone has something to offer and everyone has something to share. And some of the best experiences and best memories I've ever had have been from complete happenstance coming across complete strangers. I'll give one example. I went to Spain in 2015 because I, I had to go to um, Europe for work for two weeks. And then after I finished work, I decided to travel around for a little bit. And I went to two countries after my work was done. I went to Spain and then I went to Ireland. I was in um, Spain for a week and I was in Barcelona for several days. And I wanted to go to this restaurant that Anthony Bourdain had recommended going to because I was a big fan of his show. And I got on the train to go to the coast from Barcelona. But my Spanish had mostly left me since I learned it in college because this was about... <laughs> you know, 10, 13 years later. And uh, all I could remember was the Pledge of Allegiance in Spanish and all my other Spanish had left me. And um, and also the, the Spanish in, in Spain and especially in Barcelona where Spanish is not really the main language there. Um, they don't even call it Spanish in that region in, in Catalonia. They call it Castilian. And they call the language they speak Catalan, probably mm -hmm. butchering, the, butchering their pronunciation there. Catalan is... Um, it's like if Spanish and French had a baby. Like if you look at uh, if you look at the language written out, it, it literally looks like those two languages were smashed together. So even the Spanish that I was hearing was said in such a different way that I could barely even process it, even if I would have understood it if, if someone with, let's say, um, like a Mexican background were speaking Spanish. That was the kind of Spanish that I was used to. So I got on this train and I thought I was going the coast but in fact i was going inland and i didn't realize my mistake until maybe an hour into the train ride so i get off the train i end up in this tiny little town that wasn't anywhere near where i wanted or needed to be but i was starving so i was like all right i just got to make the best of it i look up like the nearest uh well-reviewed restaurant in this tiny little village of a couple thousand people on TripAdvisor, and i walk over there and it was only open till about I think 4 p.m. It was like 2.30 when I got there. So I sit down. They had this like three-course meal. It is everything in Spain is so cheap compared to almost anywhere else in Europe and especially America. To give you context, 2015, it was a three-course meal. It was, uh, and that also came with a full bottle of wine, <laughs> like not just a glass, a full bottle of wine um, and also a full bottle of uh, sparkling water. It's this, it's special kind of sparkling water that had a little bit of sugar in it because how they like to drink wine over there if they're not drinking it straight is uh, basically red wine in a glass with ice cubes and then some of that seltzer that sweetened seltzer water or uh, sparkling water and it was delicious it was like a, a like a poor man sangria so, sort of absolutely delicious so full bottle of wine full bottle of sparkling water three course meal 15 euros which is at the time, maybe 17, 18 American dollars. It was almost even. And it was some of the best food I'd ever had. And yeah. the server, the server comes over, right? No, no, it's fine. Uh, you, you should react that way. I reacted <laughs> that way when I, when I got my first course, I was like, damn, okay. I didn't know I was going to get this much great food for this price. So this woman comes over the server and initially I thought she was a server. Uh, but it turns out she was one of the co-owners. Her and her husband owned this restaurant together. She was originally from Bolivia. Her husband grew up in the Catalonian district. He was a Catalan. And um, he didn't speak really any English at all, except for a few words, which I was going to learn in a bit. 
um, but her English was actually quite good. Uh, they had met some years ago when she moved to Spain from Bolivia and had been married for several years and ran this restaurant together. And um, we got to talking and she asked where I was from and how I got to this, how I got to their little village and how I got lost. And, uh, I, you know, they were closing at four. And then right before they closed, she came over to me and she was like, hey, you know, we know you're here alone. And um, we thought, would you like to hang out with us after we close the restaurant? We have like a little bit of work to do, but then we could open up a bottle of wine and have some bread and just talk. And I was, I was said, I love that. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing else to do here because I didn't intend to come here. So I'd love to, to chat with you and your husband. So the restaurant closes at four. We go to the back of the restaurant. They open up a bottle of wine. We ended up having a couple of them and just like bread and cheese. And the only English that her husband knew was Game of Thrones references. So he, like anytime I could reference Game of Thrones, which was like one of his favorite shows, he would like absolutely light up and totally understood me. But other than that, like she had to translate my English into, into Catalan and, and we kind of, you know, made it work. But we ended up talking for almost five hours from about four until 9 p.m. And the only reason that I left at nine was because I think the last train out was like at 9.30 and I had to walk to the station. But I had such an amazing time. I got to understand them and why they started their restaurant and their marriage. And they were just full of so much life and happiness and joy. And the food was amazing. And I made this amazing, wonderful connection with total strangers because of an accident, because I couldn't understand the Spanish on the train that I was taking and I went the wrong way. And I have so many other stories just like that from either my trip to Europe. I have a similar story uh, at an Indian restaurant in Ireland where I, after the restaurant closed, I shut the place down with one of the servers. And it, the, the restaurant was run by um, all Bangladeshis. And the only reason they started an Indian restaurant because they were afraid that the Irish wouldn't understand what Bangladeshi food was. And, and I, I just made all these wonderful connections while I was traveling just because I took the risk of talking to people I didn't know. And... And I, I love doing that because people are so full of humanity and kindness and grace and generosity and empathy and interesting stories and brilliant backgrounds. And it's one of my favorite things about life is getting to meet and know other people. And hopefully they get to know me. And so long-winded way of saying this 34, but if you're going to honor me, I would just hope that you would do that because I think that um, not only would it be uh, flattering for me for you to do that in my honor, quote unquote, but also I think everyone should try and take that risk because... There's a lot of really wonderful, amazing people out there who you'll never get the chance to meet if you don't meet them. For sure, man. Uh, and we got you. We got you. Now that we know, we'll definitely take the 30-day challenge of talking to talking to new people. <laughs> um, but that's a wild story, man. It sounds like you got a lot, plenty more stories just like it. Um, now, I guess, you know, that kind of inspires me. You know, I haven't traveled... I don't think enough in my life to to be able to talk to folks and have these. I don't think I've had that kind of kind of experience. Um, but it did come. A question came up for me was, do you feel like you know you have your podcast to have the conversations that you want? And like myself, I have this podcast to do the same. As far as talking to people outside of your podcast, do you feel like it's pretty easy to create those same conversations outside? Uh, versus you know you had to create a platform just to have those conversations because i think that's for me that's a big reason why i also started the podcast is that i was the kind of person to always want to you know dig deeper and out there in my regular life i don't think a lot of people like doing that <laughs> or they don't want to or they have some kind of wall you know that they put up so you know i had 
creating my platform, I'm able to, to invite people on for them to know exactly what's going to happen. And they're more comfortable since, you know, it's like a thing that's set in their mind. So for you, the conversations that you want to have or you're looking to have, are you able to have that, you know, just out there in the regular world as well? And in America, I guess, because I feel like internationally, people are more open just because, oh, this is a different person. They're not from here. Let's get to know each other. Um, but yeah, would you say just in L.A.? I know L.A. is one of those places that I think maybe get a bad rap. I don't know if, if that's something that uh, you feel like is, is, a, is a judgment of living in L.A. But everyone's so busy. Everyone's so focused on doing their own thing that you can't connect in a meaningful way on the street or, you know, at the bus or wherever you meet them. That's a great question. I think... Uh, I'll answer the multiple parts of it um, kind of one by one. So comparing the podcast that I do, and by the way, if anyone's interested, not to, to gratuitously plug, but it's called Where We Go Next. And um, that show, it's a very specific kind of conversation because I usually bring on someone who's an expert in their field or someone with a specific uh, area of knowledge. And then I do a really deep dive um, on, on that particular topic and talk about it with them because they know the most about that thing. So as an example, um, episode 60, I brought on a, uh, a journalist and author by the name of Steve Hendricks who wrote this book on the history and science of fasting across every civilization and also the history of fasting in the United States and how it came to be popularized in the 19th century, et cetera, et cetera. And it was actually one of his essays uh, 10 years ago that inspired me to start fasting. So being able to bring him on to talk about his new book um, and really do a deep dive into like, wow, what's the what's the history of fasting in India? What's the history of fasting in the Jewish religion? When did Christians start fasting? When did Americans start fasting and why? Like, what are the scientific benefits? Like this deep dive with him, right? That's kind of what the podcast is about. When I get to meet and talk to strangers, I, it's an entirely different dynamic for me because I meet them where they are. So if I'm talking with someone and I feel like, you know, if anyone's looking to do this in their life, where I would recommend doing it is places that you go a lot. Um, there was this concept I first came across when I was a Starbucks barista when I was 18. Um, there's a first, everyone has a first place, a second place, and a third place. First place is your home. Second place is your work. Your third place is your place that isn't home or work that you love going often. Starbucks, of course, wanted to be everyone's third place. Uh, but your place as a listener probably isn't Starbucks, but you can probably think of it in your mind. Maybe it's a neighborhood bar, maybe it's the library, maybe it's a cafe you go to all the time. And that's where I try to do in LA a lot of that work of meeting new people and making long friendships or relationships with people. Whether it's the bartender, the person behind the counter, the barista, um, a server, etc. If you put in the work over time, people let their guard down, but it's important to meet them where they are. So I'm not gonna ask them the same questions I'd ask an expert on fasting or a stand-up comedian, because maybe they don't know anything about that but people know a lot about their own lives. So if I notice that someone's really into sports, even though I don't know much about sports at all, I'll try to engage with them there. You know, wow, when did you first get interested in baseball? Like what what first sparked your, your interest in getting, you know, um, on the baseball team when you were 12? Or if someone's really into painting, I don't know a lot about painting, but like what kind of materials do you use? Do you use oil? Do you use acrylic? Like who's your favorite painter, right? And I found over time that when people understand that you're genuinely interested in their knowledge and what they have to say in their voice, they are more than willing to share with you because 
people being interested in you is deeply flattering. And when people understand that you're not trying to get anything from them, you just want to learn from them, people open up like a blooming flower. And so that's what I just do. I try to approach them with openness and and no ego. And I try to meet them where they are and hear what they have to share with me. But I think it's easiest to do that, easier than a bus stop, let's say, unless you've got a lot of time at that bus stop. Mm-hmm. Do it somewhere, do it at your third place. Do it somewhere where you go often, where you can make those long bonds because it's not going to happen immediately. You know, like the first interaction you have with the barista, maybe you just, you know, get to know who she is, get to know her name, say a couple things. And then maybe the next time you bring up, oh, you mentioned your dog. You just got a, you just got a new golden retriever. How's Barry or whatever the dog's name is, right? Then she's like, oh, wow. Michael remembered that I have a, a golden retriever named Barry. No other customer has asked me about him before. That's really cool. And then slowly but surely you build a bond like you build any bond uh, with anyone. Um, but I think that's having worked in the service industry a lot. That's something I really try and practice is like, I think people, whether they know it or not, often treat people in the service industry just as like widgets. Like you're just the person who brings me the thing I need. Like, It's just transactional. You're getting me a coffee. That's all I want from you. I'll say the minimum amount of words and I'm gone, right? And having been on the opposite end of those transactions, it can be really dehumanizing because you don't feel like a human being. You feel like a robot who just makes coffee. And so for me, I always, even if it's just small, even if I'm never going to see that person again, I always try and interact with them in a way where it's like, I see you. I, I get that you're wearing an apron. I get that this is your job, but you're a person. You're not just someone who's making me a latte. And, and, and I think that just leading with that, if if it's a place you go often, just leading with that attitude, people open up. For sure. For sure. Uh, I think, yeah, that, that experience you've had on the other end um, is being something very valuable to a lot of folks, man. Uh, I don't think when I'm thinking about my experience, I haven't had, I don't think I've ever felt jaded in that way. Where I never felt human or I started not feeling human. Um, in a service job in my mind I guess it was always in the lens of like you know still trying to make you know every even if a person looked at me as a widget uh, in my mind it never even crossed my mind it was more like okay what am I going to be doing with this person from my from my side Uh, but yeah I can see how a lot of people can feel that way Um, but I, I think I have to ask you just one more question before before we finish off today's interview uh, hit me also <laughs> I, I, well my first one is would you be down to come back for a second episode at some point <laughs> yeah man i'd love to i i uh i was i'm excited to to answer all those those great questions that you usually ask and but i'm i'm very grateful to have the conversation that we had i don't have any regrets about the things we talked about but i would love to come back absolutely man for sure and we'll make it happen uh, but let me finish it off with my last question of the warm-up, which is on a scale from one to ten. Oh man, I keep messing. See, I'm trying to figure out this new flow. But on a scale from one to ten, how well do you know yourself? I know myself a lot better today than I did even five years ago. Um because of the things that happened to me over the last 10 years. I, I've struggled a lot with depression um, ever since my early 20s, and I had a really, really bad run of depression from about 2013 till about 2018 or so. Um, medication helped. I did Lexapro, um, which was very effective. Uh, oh, sorry. 
I think my uh, Amazon Echo thought I was saying the. Hold on one sec. You got it. Sorry about that. I said Lexapro and uh, <laughs> the Amazon Echo thought I said something else. But um, anyway, so uh, that medication helped a lot. And I'll get into that in just a second. But also cognitive behavioral therapy really helped a lot. And if you're unfamiliar with CBT, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy, what it requires is um, it's a lot of worksheets, but it, they're worksheets that are centered around uh, interrogating your own thoughts and understanding if the thoughts that you're having are helpful or not. And also understanding that the thoughts that you have are not you, not always you anyway. And that's like something that was quite difficult to grasp at first, right? But if you suffer from anxiety or depression or another mental condition um, that involves your your thoughts betraying you or your thoughts telling you things that really aren't real, um, the thoughts inside your head can really feel like you. You know, if, if your thoughts are saying you're worthless, you're nothing, no one likes you, right? Why would you think that those very thoughts actually aren't really you? They're coming from, you know, the calls coming from inside the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the but one of the biggest uh, things that I learned from cognitive behavioral therapy was understanding that sometimes your thoughts aren't you. They're they're lies. They they they're um an invasive species. They're they're weeds. You know, they're growing in the garden, but they're not the garden, right? And understanding that helped me to better understand who I was, who I truly was, and helped separate the bad thoughts, the lies, the weeds from the garden, from the flowers, from the things that were actually me. Um, and then a few months ago, uh, I had my first experience with psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms, right? And uh, I'd been putting off for many years because I was I was fearful of it. I, I wasn't, you know, I don't really have much experience with drugs outside of uh, marijuana, but, you know, it is California after all. <laughs> but I'm so glad that I had that experience because it wasn't a super intense one. I didn't have what I was expecting to have. I didn't have any kind of psychedelic trip. I didn't, you know, ride a magic dragon on a rainbow. Um, I, I really felt more than anything... Uh, an overwhelming sense of calm and and joy and gratitude, and I, I put on some headphones and I went for a walk in the, in my neighborhood um, on the east side of Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Silver Lake, and I listened to the Beatles, <laughs> and I just walked around and I looked at people and I talked with people, and it was just this really great experience, and um, but not at all what I was expecting, but it was what happened after that in the days that followed that experience that made me realize that. Um, and I don't toss this word around lightly. I was cured. The way that Lexapro worked, um, it was like if my depression was a volume knob, it would the vol it took the volume from a ten to a three, right? Like, and I think people who've worked who've had antidepressants can understand this. It mutes a lot of the worst things about depression, but it doesn't make it go away. But after I had that experience with psilocybin, I realized a few days later. Well, these things that are usually worrying me or making me anxious or depressed or sad, they're just not anymore. So I started to look like at the studies. I'm, I'm like, why, why, why have all these things that have been I've been carrying around for so long, why are they suddenly not bothering me anymore? And I looked at um, a study out of UCSF where they took people who were suffered from depression and they scanned their brains and then they gave them psilocybin and then they scanned them again a couple days later. And they, 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 the, the brain scans look like heat maps. So you, the heat maps are like areas of activity in the brain, right? And you can do this to non-depressive people as well and see that same level of activity. 
and they scanned it before and after. And in the before scans, there were areas of activity in the brain, like there are in every brain. And then there were also black parts, similar with every brain. Not every part of our brain is active all the time. And then they scanned them after that experience, a few days after, not while they were tripping, but a few days after. And they noticed a lot of the areas that were previously black were now lit up. And so after more research and studying, what they think happens in people with depression when they experience the effects of psilocybin is the brain forms new pathways, right? It, it, it's like if um, city had, let's say, 10 intercrossing roads and three highways, all of a sudden got 100 more roads and 10 more highways. So you have all these new ways to travel the city, right? So if you were stuck in a traffic jam going down 6th Street, you were just stuck for hours and you're like, God, I really want to get off the street. And then all of a sudden, magically, like a genie made it appear, you have three more roads that now allow you to go around and get to your destination. And that's what it felt like. The things that I'd been bumping my head up against, the things that were making me depressed, sad, anxious, worried, regretful, all of a sudden, and again, this sounds crazy, they just didn't bother me anymore. And I, I all and, and over the last few months, this was like four months ago, I've really started to feel like myself in a genuine way that I didn't feel like for almost 10 years. And I feel so much more in touch with the person that I used to be and the person that I knew for so long who who kind of disappeared for seven or eight years. And so to get back to your question on a scale of one to 10, how well do I know myself? I would say I know myself at a 10 because I know who I was before depression. I know who I was during depression and I know who I am after and those are three different people because I'll never be the person I was before I had that episode. But I know I'm not going to be the person I was when I had that episode. I'm an integrated person who experienced both the before, the during, and the after. And I'm grateful for the experience because I think it made me a better human being. But I'm also very grateful to be past it. And I'm so grateful for the life that I have and that I'm able to talk with people like you and meet so many interesting people and have friends and family who love me. And I'm, I'm also just really glad that for the first time in many, many years, I actually love myself. Mm. That's huge, man. And I'm, I'm very happy that you've gone to a place where you can say that and really feel it. Um, and I, I will also say that I had a similar experience with uh, shrooms as well. <laughs> my, really? My, my, my dark ages were uh, a little bit younger. You said yours was in your 20s. Um, I think my dark ages were, you know, sometimes I don't know what teenage angst is or like, you know, how much to attribute that to. But definitely from the ages 12 to 18, it was one of those moments for myself where, you know, I cried myself to sleep every night. You know, it was uh, that's just who I was. And I think I hit it pretty well. I don't think nobody really like was concerned about that part of myself. Um, and then it wasn't until college, you know, experimenting with different things. Uh, and I tried shrooms. My experience on shrooms has mostly, I would say, 99% been positive. You know, I had one time where I had a bad trip, but I was really looking for a bad trip at that time. Uh, so, but yes, in a similar vein, like this, this feeling of everything I was worried about, like the the thing, even to, to this day, I was thinking, why am I worrying about it? You know, like um, I feel so small in this big forever expanding universe that like something that i'm worried about right now i'm pretty sure isn't really gonna you know matter 
you know, in the grand scheme of things. And I think that keeps me feeling like it's okay. It's okay if some days I don't have a good day. Maybe I'm not, you know, doing the best all the time. Um, but I know in my mind I'm trying. And, you know, that whole focus of like being a part of this bigger thing, um, which I think hasn't, you know, influenced me in trying to connect with people or just staying focused on those little interactions I have with people. Um, I think that also can be attributed to that experience is that I don't know if you felt that way but for me it just I, I felt like I was being embraced by earth you know like uh, the, the sun was just hidden different um, and yeah even conversations with people I don't know if you you did it you know only have done it solo but you know if you're having that experience with a few other friends um, the connectedness uh, is super heightened it almost feels like telepathy at times where you we both me and a friend would look at something and we'll look at each other and like we're thinking the same exact thing aren't we um but yeah so that's just we could definitely dive into those experiences at a later date but i did want to just say you know anyone who has been struggling with you know self-esteem or depression uh maybe microdose see how it goes i don't know if uh, for you mike if you had microdose for me i was in college so it wasn't really microdosing back then <laughs> um but yeah it, uh, the experience has definitely took taken a, a weight off my back and has given me a new focus i will say however that i think there's still like some kind of underlying depression for myself that i i continue to hold and you know there's a lot more to unpack with that and i don't think we got the time for tonight uh, but feel free to ask me that question the next time you come back on 34 questions man um absolutely will do and thank you for sharing yeah absolutely man for sure i gotta be open about these things um you know the more you hold it in and honestly the podcast is where i'm comfortable talking about these things as well yeah i don't think you'll ca really catch me talking about this out there in public but you know for the folks out there who know me you know tune into the podcast to really get my thoughts um but and yeah for you man we are at that point um just wanted to ask you if you had any last things you'd like to add before we head out of here i'm really grateful for you having me on and i think you're doing something really special with the podcast and uh, i love the energy and i love uh I just love the whole thesis of the show. And so I'm really glad you're doing it. I look forward to coming back and um, I hope you have a thousand more episodes, man. I appreciate it, man. The goal is 10,000, right? Okay. Uh, well, I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, to shoot you short there. 10, <laughs> oh, no. Let's do a hundred thousand. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe this is just for me to just get it out there and speak it into existence one day. But, you know, the whole idea, hopefully one day is that, I have multiple people doing 34 questions, you know, in different languages and having these conversations with people in other countries because I'm very limited to just America and speaking in English. But, you know, as far as getting to know everybody in the world, I think, you know, I'm going to need more folks who can speak those languages. Um, but that's the goal, man, is to keep this thing pushing um, and have it be that collection of just society that, you know, the future can be like, damn, these were the people back in the day and <laughs> i wish we yeah. could, could have that you know uh but one thank you again mike for stopping by uh definitely enjoyed the conversation looking forward to our part two uh, i'll try to be a little more uh prepared i'll listen to some of your your episodes and you know try to pick out little things that, that stick out to me so i can ask you about them then uh, 
But yeah. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I think we got what thirty questions to go, so <laughs> I, I will I will try to be uh, less long winded next time. No, no, absolutely don't <laughs> don't do that, man. <laughs> I want you to just be yourself. Whatever comes to mind, that's that's what this is all about. Um, so thank you, Mike, and for the folks out there who tuned in. If you're watching on YouTube, listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're checking this out, I want to thank you for your time as well. Uh, so remember to reach out, reach forward. As always, much love. And we'll catch you guys next time. 34 questions. Peace. Uh, and it fades out from there, Mike.